Have you ever wondered what it's like to be a CEO? I mean, a, a CEO of a really big company, you know, where they talk about numbers like billions. I mean, what do they do all day? I'm Michael Bungay-Stenio, and this is Two Pages with MBS, where brilliant people read the best two pages of a favorite book of theirs, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. And today my guest is Dig Howard. He's CEO of Cochlea, which is a company that makes hearing possible for people of all ages, people who traditional hearing aids don't help. And Dig happens to be a friend of mine. We went to high school together and you know he was that genius numbers guy, the analytical, brilliant math kid who excelled in the math classes and the physics classes and the science classes where... I mean, I was in those classes, but I was holding on with my fingernails. All I really wanted to do was get to the English class, which was my zone of genius. I loved those classes. So when Dig came up with his book, I was actually pretty surprised by the choice of it. But we'll get to that in a moment. I started this conversation by asking Dig why he actually left mathematics, why he left that kind of possibility, that shining future of his. I was interested in business um, once I, when I left university. And so I wanted to see if I actually had no, I, sort of interesting, I was interested in business because I had no idea what business did. I hadn't grown up in a business. I'd never worked in a business. Uh, my dad was in the public service, um, but I decided business was interesting, probably because I knew nothing about it. But Dig was about to learn the hard way. His first job managing a company was not only in an industry he knew nothing about, he was actually surrounded by people. He was leading people who'd been in that industry longer than he'd been alive. I had um, five direct reports who had about 150 years experience in the cement industry, uh, two of them with children older than me, spent forever in the industry, and then I turned up knowing nothing. So it was... Um, Really, actually really good. I say it's a really good first management experience because I could not do the jobs of the people working for me because I had no idea what they're doing. So I actually had to do the only thing that was left, which was manage and lead. Imagine if you were in that position. Everybody around you knows more than you, and yet you're expected to lead them. I mean, naturally, there was some tension, maybe even some hostility there. But Dig showed his leadership in a very honest way, which is absolutely true to, to Dig as I know him. There was a certain employee who was kind of working against him, pushing back against him on every turn. So Dig called him on it. And he pretty much said, yeah, well, you'll move on. Um, I've been here since the plant. He was part of building the plant. I've been in this plant forever. You'll move on and I'll just keep doing what I've always done. Um, and so I said, okay, um, I'm only going to move on if I'm successful. So if you're working against me, I'm not going to be successful and I'm probably going to be here for a whole lot longer. You can't knock that logic. I mean, neither could the employee. And Dig was successful. He did move on and eventually he worked his way up and became the CEO of Cochlear about three years ago. And today, our analytical math-loving guest is sharing a book that is almost counter to his previous grounding, his previous way of thinking. It is a business classic. It is In Search of Excellence by Tom Peters. Professionalism in management is regularly equated with hard-headed rationality. We saw it surface at ITT in Harold Janine's search for the unshakable facts. The numerative rationalist approach to management dominates the business schools. It teaches us that well-trained professional managers can manage anything, 
seeks detached analytical justification for all decisions, it is right enough to be dangerously wrong and it arguably has led us seriously astray. It doesn't tell us what the excellent companies have apparently learned. It doesn't teach us to love the customers. It doesn't instruct our leaders in the rock bottom importance of making the average Joe a hero and a consistent winner. It doesn't show how strongly workers can identify with the work they do if we give them a little say so. It doesn't tell us why self-generated quality control is so much more effective than inspector generated quality control. It doesn't tell us to nourish product champions like the first buds in springtime. It doesn't tell us to allow, even encourage, as Procter & Gamble does, in-house product line competition, duplication, and even product-to-product cannibalization. It doesn't command that we overspend on quality, overkill on customer service, and make products that last and work. It doesn't show, as Anthony Athos puts it, that good managers make meaning for people as well as money. The rational approach to management misses a lot. The word strategy, which used to mean a damn good idea for knocking the socks off the competition, has often come to be synonymous with the quantity breakthrough, the analytical coup, market share numbers, learning curve theory, positioning business on a four or nine or 24 box matrix. Don't misunderstand us. We're not against qualitative analysis per se. The best consumer marketers, such as Procter & Gamble, do crisp to the point analysis that is the envy and bedevilment of their competitors. Actually, the companies that we called excellent are among the best at getting the numbers, analyzing and solving problems with. Show us a company without a good fact base, a good quantitative picture of its customers, markets and competitors, and we will show you one in which priorities are set with the most Byzantine of political maneuvering. What we're against is wrong-headed analysis. Analysis is too complex to be useful, too unwieldy to be flexible. Analysis that strives to be precise, especially at the wrong time, about inherently unknowable, such as detailed market forecasts, when end use of the product is still hazy. Remember, most early estimates of the market for computers was 50 to 100 units. And especially analysis done to line operators by control-oriented hands-off staff. We're also against situations in which action stops while planning takes over. All too frequently observed paralysis through analysis syndrome. We've watched too many line managers who simply want to get on with their job, but are deflated by central staffs that can always find a way to prove something won't work, although they have no way of quantifying why it might work. And above all, we deplore the unfortunate abuse of the term rational. Rational means sensible, logical, reasonable, a conclusion flowing from a correct statement of the problem. But rational has come to have a very narrow definition in business analysis. It is the right answer, but it's missing all the messy stuff, messy human stuff, such as good strategies that do not allow for persistent old habits, implementation barriers, and simple human inconsistencies. I love that. I mean, I love Tom Peters because, I mean, like you, that was his first book. He was the first business speaker I ever saw. And uh-huh. um, a couple of years ago, he and I kind of shared a stage together at speaking at a business conference. And that was quite a thrill to kind of go, oh, there's a cycle of life thing happening wow. here. Um, yeah, fantastic. What, what struck a chord for you rereading that? Uh, it is that um, so much that there are two things. Analysis is important, but has finite use. Mm. Uh, 
people are incredibly important and they are the only thing that actually makes a business succeed. And, and that's that's sort of that core message. And the idea that, um, which I think was probably more relevant at the time, that management could be totally systemized. Right, right. Uh, that you got to, yes, you can, but it's got to have the leadership overlay or you won't get the best from people who won't just won't get and therefore you won't get the results and good companies have worked that out what impact did it have on you when you kind of started reading that i know you can't remember the details but how did it kind of shift things for you uh, it it was it was the um just the, the fascination that there was um a methodology mm. to business that there was learnings you could get from looking across business there was a process to follow um because i had i had no idea what a, what a, apart from a business sold things made things sold things and hopefully had some money left over uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I, I didn't really know there you go. that's a quick summary of an executive mba to west. everybody who's listening Dick's <laughs> given it to you in three sentences so you, you you've mastered it uh, he's issuing certificates <laughs> later on at the end of the uh, the interview and, and, <laughs> and I think part of the bit that grabbed me was that, um, but to be really good is genuinely about people yeah. and about leadership. Um, and actually, if you look in the, which I did in the um, uh, the index yeah. of In Search of Excellence, there are six pages with reference to leadership and a hundred and something with references to management. Oh. That, And I don't know if this was early in the days of actually calling out leadership as a uh, something a bit different from management. Right. Um, but that's, I remember one of the things that struck me was actually this is a lot about people right. and how do you get people to do things. Back back to the having the plans great, but you've got to get the plan done. Yeah. How do you now hold the difference between leadership and management? Oh, I think it, it, uh, it, it leadership is the, is the, I think the people right. part of it and management is more, the process of, of, and very important, you've got to have both. Yeah. You've got to have a plan. You've got to know what are the actions to deliver that plan. You've got to have measures along the way. Yeah. You've got to have, um, you know, it's the plan, do, check, act yeah. loop. Uh, I think it's fundamental to good management. Um, but actually really making that loop hum yeah. is leadership. That's really nice. It's uh, I think it's one of the curses of modern business that management is a term applied to people because it objectifies them mm. and it dehumanizes mm. them whereas i think if you go management's about the process and about the buildings and about the machines and about the systems and leadership is about the people that's a that's a helpful um separation of terminology and language matters in times like this it does and it probably would help us to be clearer on you know there are these two arms of, of a, uh, I'm going to say a senior management role, but a senior leadership role, a senior role in a business. Uh, so that you have to have the management process, but you must have the leadership to be successful. You talked about, when you were talking about your role at, at Cochlear, which is to be uh, helping to influence the culture. And there's endless conversation in management journals about, you know, is it culture or is it strategy? Does culture eat strategy for breakfast or are they both a, is it more like a buffet and you have to have a little bit of both? Um, 
Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering where you weigh in on that. You know, when you look at the strategy and you look at the culture for Cochlear, how do you find the balance between them as the CEO? Um, I think I think you do need both, uh, but I think the um, the culture is essential to strategy execution. Right. So, so yes, you've got to think through the strategy and, and you don't need too many people to think through the strategy and work it out and you get feedback from across the business, but the culture you need everyone in on. Oh, uh, I love that distinction. Uh, That's so good. Uh, I've never heard it said like that, but I think there's something really powerful about that, which is like strategy, if you've got some really smart people and they've got right perspective, you can have an interesting debate and then it's like, let's roll this out. But culture, it's either everybody or it's just not a culture. Yes, yeah, because I think culture is fundamentally about how do we all work together? Yeah. And and for what purpose are we working together? Uh, and, and it is all. And so you can't opt out of the culture. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's one of the, you know, over time, we've seen people come into the business who are talented people but don't succeed. It's because they didn't get into the culture. Yeah. You've actually got to be in the culture to move it. You can't be on the outside pulling right, right, or pushing. Well, let me ask you another difficult question. <laughs> I feel like I'm peppering you with difficult <laughs> questions, and I appreciate your patience. Um, you know, we a couple of weekends ago, we were together um, um, hanging out over the weekend, which was delightful. And I remember you saying kind of casually, you never liked having a boss. <laughs> and I remember that because I was like, yes. oh my goodness, that's me too. I was, <laughs> I was lousy as a person to be led, honestly. I feel sorry mm. for almost all of my bosses. Um, and some I feel angry about, but mostly I just feel sorry for them because they were dealing with me. Um, what have you learned about not just being a leader, but being a follower? Hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good, that is a tricky question because I'm not sure I'm a very good follower. Right. Um, I mean, the, 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 I've had some one, I've worked for some wonderful people over time. Um, and you know, the, the, the best thing about them was they were interesting and inquisitive, yeah. but let me get on with it. Right. So they were, they would question, they'd ask what I was doing, they'd give ideas and then they'd take their hands off. Right. Um, because I hate being directed, and right. I suppose I've had an independent streak for yeah in me from somewhere. I hear you. Um, yeah. uh, so it probably doesn't make me a very good follower. Uh, it, it's it's um it's a good question that I've never really thought through. That's probably a bit arrogant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought about following. <laughs> well, let me ask you this then: what knowing that you like me are not necessarily a great follower. What does that teach you about being a leader, if anything? I mean, it's all getting a bit kind of mm. convoluted a bit, but if you can follow me, what do you think that experience means I, about I, how you show up and the way you lead? I, I, I think, yeah, look, I think a few things. I think one is um, give people space. Right. I, I think you have to give people space to fail too. That um, It's one of the but something I've learned over time is something I've often saying to people is let them go. You know, the company won't go bust if this fails. Right. Uh, and actually, people really do fail because they work out if they're going wrong and course correct. Right. Um, so I think I think that 
freedom, trying to give people as much freedom as you can to say, get on and mm. try something and test test yourself and stretch. Um, certainly, that's how I want to be. So it's a bit how I want to treat people. Um, but then the hard bit of leadership is, well, when do you? When do you go in? Right. <laughs> and how do you go in in a way that hopefully is is builds rather than detracts right uh, you know and it's if things are going really wrong it's easier to build than not yeah um, but mostly things aren't going really wrong and that you know there's often more downside than upside so intervening hopefully in a way that adds is uh, I think a real challenge and I get it wrong plenty of times yeah. I get it right sometimes <laughs> Dick how do you build capacity for failure? within an organization because mm. people talk a big game about that and there's so much pressure. I mean, on the one hand, we know the intellectual arguments for yeah. it, which is like, this is actually how you do blue ocean strategy. This is what innovation actually mm. is a series of failures on, on the road to figuring something else out. But you know, when you're a public company, you've got obligations to your board and to your shareholders and to the multiple stakeholders, um, that you, you're, you interact with. Um, and I understand your capacity for failure because it's part of your independent streak, but how do you help build that within a company of 4,000 people? Um, I'm, I'm trying to learn how I think is the best answer to that. I, I, um, certainly talk about it. Uh, we try to bring examples of failure up, um, to talk about it, but that's hard because a, there actually aren't a lot because people do course correct. Yeah. Um, uh, and B, people often don't really want to talk about them too much when they when they are there. Yeah. But I think trying to make them public, I think also talking about learning, I mean, certainly failure is a fantastic opportunity to learn. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the biggest learnings I've had have been through failure, yeah. for sure. Um, so, but it's hard. It's hard. And. Uh, to, uh, to again, I don't have the magic answer. Right? We're, we're trying to be better at it. We're trying some good things. Oh, I thought I was going um, to try and do a co-author a book with you on how, how, to, <laughs> how to build failure capacity because yeah. it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that people aspire to and at the mm. same time have so many things pulling them away from that. Yeah, but the, yeah, but the, and the, also, the reality, though, is there are very few things where failure is so significant yeah. that it does damage to the business. And if they are, they are probably executive level right. issues where you have hopefully people most experienced at seeing when something's going to fail and correcting right. first. There's a, a book I read many years ago from a guy called Mike Abrashoff, who was one of those, there's a series of people who've been captains of ships in the US Navy or boats or ships. I'm not sure which one it is, the big ones. And he was one of them. And he had a very useful uh, rubric around that. He said, look, there are two types of mistakes, above the waterline mistakes and below the waterline mistakes. And part of your job as a leader at whatever scale, wherever you are, is to help avoid the below the waterline mistakes because that actually <laughs> costs lives and sink ships. But above the waterline yeah. mistakes, it's like we, uh, we get smarter by making our mistakes. And that's where the wisdom and the experience and the 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 knowledge that only you have because only you at, at only cochlear has made this mistake 
Mm. So only, only we are in possession of the knowledge that comes from making that mistake. Yes, yeah, and it's great framing above the waterline and below the, the yeah, waterline. It's helpful, isn't um, it? And, and most of what you do in business is above the waterline. I agree. Again, Dick, this is me being nosy. So I, you know, I, you've got to be have a degree of discretion as a, a CEO. But here's a question that I wrestle with myself. So I'm curious to know how you answer it. Which is, what have you learned about building a really high performance senior leadership team in terms of what goes into that? Yeah, I I will not at all proclaim to be an expert on this, and and very much. Um, learning have been learning on this for my whole career yeah i think how, how do you do it and, and have not found the secret source i think that's it i have an excellent team um I, okay i think i think a few things that over time is um one one is you really want people to be genuine when they're in the team right so you don't want pretense, um, don't want uncontrolled ego. Mm. Everyone who reaches a senior level has an ego. So not, not right. saying no, can't say no ego, but ego, but uncontrolled, got to be suppressed to, to or subordinate to the good of the organization. I think that's the secret, right? Which is like you, you're serving yourself, but you're playing, you're playing across the organization at a senior level. You're not playing for your little part of the pie. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that sense that the yes the organisation you know we're all here to have the organisation and succeed. What's that mean? That means our customers succeed. Right. Um, so if we can get that sense and then an openness that goes with it is important. I think size is important. Um, I, I started off with I think twelve direct reports. Now down to nine. Right. It's a much that difference of three is significant. So you're going to say the size of the people. They're like, they have to be over six foot three or we just don't hire them. <laughs> yeah. but okay. That makes more sense. Size of the team. Yeah. A tighter team rather than a bigger team. Yeah. The, the, yeah, that, that's right. Um, <laughs> look, I think diversity of views is, is important. I, I, I think I've got good diversity of views. I don't have great diversity of um, backgrounds. Yeah. Um, but that's all, you know, work, work in progress. But it, it's, a, it's a great question. And I would, I really don't know the answer other than the things I've learned on experience and you're just you're forever working yeah, on it. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's an endless task. It's one of the hardest things. How do you allow diversity of views to flourish within the team? Um, by not speaking first is an important one. That's so right. Uh, sometimes I still don't quite learn that one, but uh, if I stop and think, I do. <laughs> And I think, and I, and I think that, so. That's part. And then when they're there, um, trying to encourage it try, and trying to follow the ideas through, right. rather than shut them down with a, well, we tried that, or I know you're going to be coming from there because that's where you came from last week. Yeah. Um, so I think it, it's again a hard thing to do. Yeah. But trying to build it, I think part of it is, and and I, and. I don't do this enough, but getting other people in or external ideas in, it can often spark a right another way of thinking or another another train of thought or an idea. I can see that. Can you kind of disrupt more familiar patterns of conversation? Because I can imagine with different players, but the same players are like, there's a pattern how a conversation unfolds. And, yes. and, an, and yeah. an external person can disrupt that pattern. 
Yeah, and and I think if you can get people, yes, thinking creatively to a, a fresh idea to build on or to right. step from right. uh, can help that uh, that process. This has been such an interesting conversation. I've totally, I mean, I've loved it. Um, I have a question I asked right at the end and it's a broad, it's an open question. So you can do with it what you will. And the question is this, what needs to be said in this interview that hasn't yet been said? Oh, well, <laughs> oh, ah, that is a good last question, especially without notice. <laughs> I want to turn it around on you and ask you these questions. <laughs> I love that. Tell me how to build, how we build a top team. Tell me how we build that, that works together to succeed. And tell me how we build a culture where failure is a, is a wonderful learning opportunity. Well, <laughs> suddenly, this, suddenly this is now a five-hour episode as we try and figure this out. Um, I, you know, I've just spoken to enough CEOs who say they spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about their direct reports and the level below them. For all the reasons that you've said, Dig, which is around actually the people you have uh, at that senior level are in many ways embodiment of the culture. And what you always yes. run the risk of is that they're the embodiment of the culture past rather than the embodiment of the culture future. And, you know, I heard a really interesting phrase the other day. You know, there's this, all this language around we're hiring for culture fit. And this person made the observation that when you're hiring for cultural fit, you run the risk of just an echo chamber and you actually become stagnant as a culture. Yes. Whereas if you hire for culture ad, I think that's a very interesting framing of it yep. because it's like, how will you both amplify the best of who we already are and also take us to a new part of, you know, evolve us. So, you know, in five years time, the culture is different because of the, the presence that you've had in this culture. But yeah, hiring, hiring great people, um, you know, I'm just on my, my micro <laughs> cosm scale compared to, to mm. you. I, here's what I've learned about me as a leader. I am an excellent leader of people like you, meaning smart and ambitious and willing to take a crack and willing to own accountability and responsibility of the decision-making and looking for coaching and, and encouragement and uh, appropriate feedback at the right times. But basically I'm like, you got this <laughs> and are able to take the power and the authority. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm an excellent leader of people like that. I'm a terrible leader of people who aren't like that, who are more needy and, uh, and less and kind of a little more victimy and a little less kind of, I can't, it's too hard. I can't do it. And it's not my fault. And then I get into some of the stuff that you talked about, which is like, how do I do conflict? I don't even like conflict. I've written about it, sure, but I prefer not to have it. So, um, uh, you know, one of the guy, one of my kind of mentors, I guess, is a guy called Marshall Goldsmith, who's known as one of the senior executive coaches in the world. Yep. When he thinks about his clients, mm. he has a great phrase, which is like, when I fail, it's because I have a problem in client selection. <laughs> Because it's like, if you pick the right people, you're, you're, you're on the right. If you've failed with a, a client as a coach, it's because you, you just hadn't figured out that you weren't going to work it. So all of that to say, it's hard, but um, spending that time constantly thinking about the makeup of your senior team is definitely one of the messy, difficult, high potential ways that CEOs can survive, I think, and succeed. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. Thank you. 
There's a bunch of things I got from this conversation. Honestly, I kind of geeked out about on this conversation because it's right in the heart of what I think about when I'm doing work with big organizations. It's you know, culture versus strategy. I love Dig's perspective on that. The weight of a leader's word. It takes leaders so long to, to realize that if you're the boss, what you say is never a suggestion, it's an order. So, you know, Dig said, you know, speak last, speak second. And I thought this is really interesting, how important and how difficult it is to encourage people to make mistakes. I mean, imagine you're the CEO of a billion dollar company and it's still a challenge to get your organization to take risks. But you know, what I'm really taking away from this conversation is a kind of meta-learning, a perspective and a realization that the people I admire are those who go fearlessly at the hard, big, messy, ambiguous problems. I mean, Dig is leading Cochlear. It's a billion-dollar company. Shannon, who's the CEO of Box of Crayons, which is the learning and development company I founded. I mean, we're not even, well, maybe close to 1% of the size of Cochlear. So totally different in terms of complexity, in terms of scale, in terms of reach. But the conversations I have with Shannon about what she's thinking about and what she's wrestling with and what's hard and important for her pretty much exactly the same as the conversation I just had with Dig. And in fact, that's why she is such a brilliant CEO. Not only does she have kind of skills and understanding and a depth of knowledge around learning and development, but really her capacity to keep pushing into the hard, messy stuff is, I think, what makes her an extraordinary leader. I mean, it's ironic, really, that leadership, and I would say being strategic, becomes less about the answer and more about what are the questions that really matter. And of course, it's ironic, it's, it's lovely, because I am all about curiosity and championing that, and Dig was such an embodiment of that. I mean, I hope the conversation with Dig actually inspires you to go, well, what are my big questions? What are the big, messy things for me? And how do I have the courage and the fortitude and the patience to step forward into that, poke a finger in that, and see what comes out, see what emerges. Thanks for listening to Two Pages with MBS. I hope you'll consider joining our free community. It's called the Duke Humphreys, and it's named after my favorite library at Oxford, which is where the rarest and most extraordinary books were kept. At our Duke Humphreys, you'll find transcripts and unreleased episodes and more. And you'll find the Duke Humphreys at mbs.works slash podcast. And of course, this podcast grows best by word of mouth. So if my conversation with Dig has struck a chord for you, please think of one person in your life who'd also be intrigued by the perspectives of this CEO, what it means to be strategic, what it means to put culture in front of strategy, or at least to find the balance between them. And please let them know about the episode. Because here's the thing, more subscribers means I have more chance of landing the extraordinary guests that you and I would like to hear and I'd like to talk to. And of course, a rating and review on your podcast app of choice is also deeply appreciated.